this is the voice of someone who cannot speak. She is an endling. That word, endling, is to me the saddest word in the English language. It means the very last individual of a species before it goes extinct. This is a letter I wrote to an endling. Dear Essa, your name, Essa, means the only one in human language, the lonely one. After your last heartbeat, the world will be gone forever. It's not, people think, an important one. It's only yours, but your only world. After your last flight, a freedom will be lost forever. It's not, people think, an important freedom, only yours, but your only one. After your last song, a category of music will be silenced forever. Not, people think, an important one, only yours, but your only song, and the only one you ever wanted to hear sung back to you. For while you live, you can sing your female laughing thrush call all you like, and no male will ever answer you, and you will never know why. You're a nervous bird. In the photograph I have of you, you look frightened. Your eyes are an orange circle with a black center. And you don't like being in the eye line of your keepers. You are easily stressed and would rather be hidden in deep foliage, tucked in a thicket of forests. You have never wanted to call attention to yourself except for a mate, but now you have the cachet of true tragedy. Your kind, the rufous-fronted laughing thrush, subspecies Slamatensis, is named as the world's next most likely known extinction. You, exactly you, Essa, one single individual bird of the last. Your death will mark its extinction. You, Essa, the lonely one. Your kind are an endling. This is what extinction sounds like. The silencing of song that should have been forever yours. Forever yours, Jay. The evidence is clear. We are in an unprecedented This is going to destroy the lives of millions of people around the this world. This is the challenge for all of humanity. This must stop now. Civil disobedience. Non-violence. This is a moment of choice. Decolonize, decarbonize. We're going to rebel. Scientific realism has to win. Extinction Rebellion. Extinction Rebellion. Extinction Rebellion. Welcome to the Extinction Rebellion podcast. This is episode 20. This is an ecological emergency. And that was the wonderful writer Jay Griffiths talking movingly about an endling one of the last of a species, at the Writers' Rebel event in Tufton Street last year. 
I'm Jessica Townsend and today I'm co-presenting with a new person to the podcast, Tom Stallard. Hi Jessica. Hi Tom. Tom's not only editing the episode, he's been roped in as a last minute presenter, so hooray! Uh, we're, both, <laughs> we're both from Walthamstow XR and we met during a mini campaign to save some lime trees. Um, hi Tom, welcome. Hi, Jessica. Yeah. And well, I was just going to mention the Tufton Street gig because it was it was just amazing the way we were protesting in Parliament Square because I was playing um, in the samba band at the time and we came around to Tufton Street and all sat there in the rain, in the dark, just listening to all the stories. And it was, yeah, it was a really inspiring action. Yeah. How amazing. I didn't realise that you were there as part of the samba band. Oh, that's good to hear. I mean, the samba band was so important in the in the little films that were made about the event because it gave the um, it gave the continuity kind of sound as we went through. And today we've got an episode about biodiversity, and this interview is with a key member of XR scientists, Dr. Charlie Gardner, who's a conservationist scientist at the University of Kent. So there are two main ways that all species react to climate change. Every plant and every animal has its preferred set of conditions, what we call its ecological niche. And of course, they've evolved to a particular set of conditions in the places where they live. What climate change is doing is it, it's changing the conditions, meaning that the places where species currently live are no longer suitable. And there's, there's two ways they can react to that. Either they can shift to new places or they can change the seasonality of, of, of their life cycles. So what we're finding globally is that species are moving polewards and to higher altitude. You know, if you're used to a certain temperature and it's getting warmer, then you're going to have to move towards the poles or to higher altitude to remain in the same temperature. And species have always done this in the past as a reaction to past climate changes. The problem now is that we live in a highly fragmented world. We've destroyed the vast majority of natural habitats. And not only have we reduced the area available for species to live in, but we've reduced the connectivity between areas um, you know, by fragmenting them. So species just aren't able to, to move and keep pace with, with changing conditions. So we're simultaneously forcing species to adapt through climate change, but preventing them from adapting by destroying habitats. Um, but some people would say that the Earth's got hotter and colder many times before and animals have adapted. So why can't they just do that? I hear the thing that you say about the geographical connectivity, but um, uh, are there any other factors? Well, it, it, it's those two things. So one is the fact that you know, they were adapting in an intact world previously and, and the world is not intact now. The other thing is the pace of the changes. So climate change is happening much faster than it has previously. And then the third thing, I suppose, is that species are suffering from multiple stressors at the same time. So if the climate is changing and your habitat is becoming smaller and you're becoming exposed to new pollutants and you're you know, suffering problems X, Y and Z, then 
all these things come together into a perfect storm, which which means that species are just under too much pressure to adapt. You know, perhaps they could overcome the problem if that was the only problem they suffered. Perhaps they would be able to adapt to climate change if that was the only pressure. But when you have all these pressures at the same time, they end up um, you know, having a massive toll. And we see that the majority of species around the world that have been studied are you know, turning out to be very vulnerable indeed to, to climate change. I think I also read or heard you saying something about sometimes the insect that pollinates a plant isn't ready to do that at the same time as the plant needs to be pollinated. So those are kind of getting out of sync. Yes. So so this is the other major problem is the breaking down of the temporal links between species. So of course, no species is uh, advancing the the seasonality of their life cycles. You know, we, we have all noticed how spring is is coming earlier and earlier overall the problem arises because different species are either reacting to different cues or they're changing their seasonality at different rates so species that depend on each other are changing their seasonality at different times so they're no longer interacting in the way they always have so one great example of that is flowers and their pollinators. There's a wonderful example of a bee orchid, which is um, you know, a beautiful little orchid in the south of England, which is pollinated by a bee called the buffish mining bee. And it entices the males of the bee to um, engage in pseudo-copulation with the flowers. The flowers look a bit like a female and they give off chemical pheromones that, that attract the males. And so yeah, the males are, are tricked into thinking that the flower is a female bee and in mating with it, they pollinate it. The problem is that the, the flowers, the orchids aren't actually that great at imitating a female bee. And if there are female bees around, the male bees will, of course, preferentially mate with them. But there is this brief window of time. The male bees emerge earlier than the female bees. And during that period, you have all these horny bees around and nothing to mate with but the flowers. With climate change, it's reducing that window. The females are emerging much earlier and that's reducing the pollination rates. And this will have knock-on effects, meaning that the, the orchid is less able to reproduce. Another example of this mismatch in time is with the blue tits and great tits that I can see outside my window now. They'll be starting to breed over the next few years, and they've evolved the timing of their breeding so that their, their chicks hatch at the moment where there is maximum availability of caterpillars. The problem is that the oak trees that the caterpillars feed on are coming into leaf much earlier. The caterpillars are responding to that and, and emerging much earlier, but the birds aren't able to move their breeding early enough. So by the time they've hatched, the peak availability of their food has already passed and they just don't have as much to feed their chicks as they used to. So this is leading to declines in their reproductive success. One particular bird, which is a, a migrant to our shores called the pied flycatcher, has declined by 90% over the last couple of decades. And this is largely because of this mismatch in, in the timing of its breeding with, with the caterpillars that it should be feeding on. I did, for my sins, biology at school with a not particularly talented teacher, it has to be said. 
but she did manage to grind into me the idea of web. So would you mind explaining why uh, it's not just linked to the two species involved, some of these catastrophes, it can have a kind of wider effect? Yes. So any ecosystem, be it a, a meadow or a woodland or a grassland, contains a huge range of species from the large ones that we see and tend to think of when we walk around in that place to you know, invertebrates and, and even microscopic organisms in, in the soil and elsewhere. And it is the interactions between these components of the ecosystem that keep it functioning as a system. We, as ecologists, we have very little understanding of the importance of particular individual species. But we know that some of them are absolutely essential to ecosystems. We call these keystone species. Others might be less important to the actual functioning of, of, of the forest as a whole. The problem is we have very little understanding of which ones um, are essential and which ones are not. So an analogy that people use is one of rivets on an aeroplane. You could lose the odd rivet here or there on the wing of an aeroplane and the plane would continue flying. But we don't know at which of the key rivets and, and at which point the whole thing might fall apart just because one rivet too many has disappeared. So the major components of ecosystems tend to be plants. In, in, in Britain, uh, you know, we, we see trees and we think of trees as the key components of our ecosystems. But trees, of course, depend on animals in all sorts of ways. They need pollinators to pollinate them. They need seed dispersers to disperse their seeds afterwards. They have animals that they interact negatively with too. So there are grazers that feed on their, on their leaves. There are seed predators that, that predate their seeds. They also interact with fungi in the soil and other microorganisms. So when we see a tree, it is in fact much more than just a single individual tree, but it's one component of this, as you say, a web of different species that all come together and interact together to keep this functioning ecosystem. Now, I believe that there is a report, which I think is called the Tresos Report, which talks about major disruptions to these kind of ecological systems that I suppose those would be those sorts of networks or webs kind of writ large. Um, would you mind talking us through that? So, uh, yes, I believe you're, you're talking about a paper that was published in the journal Nature last year, which looked at the risk of um, what the authors termed abrupt ecological disruption. And this... Um, this is a quite a, a new concept, uh, but a very scary one. The, the basic premise is that you know, we, we talked about individual species being um, pushed beyond their ecological niche by, by climate change. But of course, most species that live in the same place will be adapted to very similar conditions because yeah they've they, they've all evolved in the same conditions so with climate change the risk is that we won't just see one or two species being pushed beyond their limits at a time we will see the vast majority of species that live in any one area being pushed beyond their limits at the same time and if that happens what we might see is is abrupt ecological disruption if if every 
Uh, you know, if, if 90% of all the plants and trees in a particular rainforest area are pushed beyond their limits at the same time so that none of them can continue to live there, well, there's nothing left because that's, you know, that's 90% of all the species going at the same time. So, and, and this is a really worrying concept for conservationists because we've always tended to, to you know, consider the extinction of individual species happening um, in isolation. What climate change shows us is that we could see the disappearance of, of huge numbers of species at the same time. And we just don't know what will happen to ecosystems like rainforests or, or temperate woodlands like we have here in the UK if that happens. We're, we're moving into a world of complete unknowns. Climate change really... Yeah, it changes everything that we know about ecology. So, so in terms of time frame, unfortunately, we're likely to see these things starting to happen within the lifetimes of many of us. So this tree source paper, for example, predicted abrupt ecological disruption of the Amazon rainforest in about uh, 20, in late 2060s or 2070s, um, and similar disruption to other ecosystems like, like coral reefs within this certainly within this century so unfortunately yes these things will be happening rather soon um so you're a conservation scientist what are conservationists how are they reacting to this these hazards Unfortunately, I found that the conservation world has been quite slow to react. Um, and there's a number of reasons for that, I think. Partly, we have our hands very full already with the threats to biodiversity that we've always been trying to address. It's been difficult to, to shake conservationists out of, uh, I, I wouldn't say complacency um but but to, to shake us out of our our very firm focus on habitat destruction over harvesting of certain species invasive species and pollution and, and all these other things partly i think climate change is just such a overwhelming and huge threat that Many conservationists have done what the rest of society has done, and that's bury our heads in the sand. You know, the true implications of all this means having to change everything. And of course, this, it takes a lot of courage to open ourselves up to, to this new knowledge. I guess um, it's a little bit like um, Jem Bendor as well, that uh, when it dawned on him where we might be going, it was he was thought, well, my job is useless. Uh, I need to do something else because this isn't addressing uh, what's happening. But I, I guess there are ways that you, your sector can address it. It's just not in the sort of nice, stable way that uh, conditions have existed for the last 60 years well let's face it we've been failing to address the crisis yeah yes it, it, it is difficult um, conservation is in a difficult situation because one of the implications of climate change is that we simply aren't going to be able to save everything and you know conservation has always been about preventing extinctions and we you know try to to make sure that the very rarest and most threatened things don't disappear. Climate change means that many things will disappear. 
So I think we have to slightly reevaluate what we do because, of course, whilst the importance of preventing individual species from going extinct, that might take on a lesser importance when we think of the implications of climate change. So ecosystems like, like forests and um, grasslands and wetlands and peat bogs store huge amounts of carbon that would be released into the atmosphere and it would worsen climate change if we didn't protect them. But they also absorb huge amounts of carbon. So about a quarter of all our greenhouse gas emissions are absorbed in what we call terrestrial carbon sinks, so things like soils and, and, and forests and vegetation. So it really highlights the importance of conservation moving forward. You know, we, we really can't give up on conservation despite the pressing urgency of climate change because we, we won't be able to address climate change without it. And I guess one of the species whose survival you've got to think about uh, is the human species as well. And of course, Already, uh, there are quite a lot of humans under stress because of uh, uh, climate change. Uh, but, but you know, it's the time's coming when we're all going to be under stress and have to have to face that. Absolutely, um, and yeah, I, I I firmly believe that the conditions that were yeah, the conditions that will allow humans to survive on this planet are the same conditions that will allow other species to survive on this planet. So really, it's one and the same goal now. It's maintaining the planetary conditions that will allow complex life to thrive. And that includes both us and other species. And I think that's a really important message for conservation to absorb, because even without climate change, conservation is failing. We're losing biodiversity at you know, very rapid rates. We, we win some battles, but we're losing the war. And I'm convinced that the reason for this is because we haven't managed to persuade society of why conservation is important. And, you know, society doesn't think conservation is important. Our main conservation strategy globally is managing protected areas, you know, parks and reserves that are set aside for nature. And we've managed to place 15% of the Earth's land surface into these parks and reserves, which of course is a huge achievement. So the amount of money that the world spends on managing parks and reserves is the same as the size of the global beard grooming market. That's how little the world cares for nature. We care for nature as much as we care about our beards. We keep on saying that conservation is about preserving other species. It's an altruistic quest to save other things. We all want there to be blue tits and we all want there to be tigers and pandas, but the fact is the world just isn't prepared to pay to conserve tigers and pandas. That's why I talk about conservation being essential to human survival. I think once we frame it in this way and see just how important it is, it's not just about other species, it's about us too, then perhaps the world will wake up to its importance and start putting its money where its mouth is. And um, I think, ironically, when human beings have run out of other options, when agriculture becomes untenable, then they do tend to go back to nature as a way of surviving and, uh, if not making a living, at least uh, surviving. 
Yes, that that's very much the case. So I, I lived in Madagascar for 10 years until um, 2015. And I was very interested in the interactions between people and nature. And I found that people's dependence on nature was increasing as a result of climate change. So in the south of Madagascar, um, people's preferred livelihoods is farming. Um, all people want to be happy is to have a little patch of farm that they could you know, farm year in, year out to provide for their family and, and, and generate a little bit of excess cash. But the problem is in the south of Madagascar that there isn't any irrigation infrastructure. So people rely on the rainfall and the rainfall is becoming much, much less predictable. And of course, if you're a farmer, you need predictability. You need to know when the rain is going to come so that you know when to plant your seeds. So What's happening is that climate change is making farming less and less of a viable livelihood and people lack safety nets. So if a farmer in Britain was to lose their crop, then she would have safety nets. She would have crop insurance and she would have subsidies from the government. Um, and if she decided to quit being a farmer altogether, she could... Um, you know, go on the dole and the government would look after her because we have this welfare state that provides a safety net. In Madagascar, there are no such, um, th there's no such backup. So that when people lose their livelihood as a farmer, they, they have very few options. One option is to move to the city and, you know, to, to, to be move to a slum or, or beg or look for work. Another option is to go to the forest to um, chop trees and produce charcoal. Another option is to go to the forest and carry out what we used to call slash and burn agriculture, shifting cultivation. And another option is to go to the sea and become a fisher person. So of the four options, three of them depend on nature. And it's nature that provides the safety net. And we're going to see this more and more and more around the world as climate change disrupts people's preferred livelihoods they're going to turn to the ocean or the forest to find something they can eat or, or, or sell as an alternative so so climate change and the destruction of nature um, operate in a, a, a sort of feedback loop mm. and sadly those you know, are the same habitats that the animals are under stress in. So, you know, there's less and less to be had from them for more and more humans uh, who will be joining the poor old uh, elephants and things, not able to um, get what they need. So what is the answer? We have in May a biodiversity COP coming up. Um, if you were, I don't know, Boris Johnson's king of the world, what would you do at Biodiversity COP to uh, set things right? And what do you think may happen? Um, this is quite a tricky question, actually. Um, so the, this is the conference of the parties of the Convention on Biological Diversity, which is the global legal framework that governs how nation states use and, and manage the biodiversity that they have. And uh, so like with the Framework Convention on Climate Change, there's a conference of the parties um, you know, regularly. And the, the next one is going to be all about 
setting a new framework, a new agenda for biodiversity, because it's been 10 years since the last framework, which was um, known as the Aichi framework, and it was established in 2010. At the end of last year, there were a number of reports that were documenting the failure of the previous targets set in 2010. Of the 20 targets, I think 19 of them weren't met globally. And at a national level, for the UK's contribution to those 20 targets, I think 17 of them weren't met. I might be um, off on the precise numbers there, but essentially we have failed to set the targets we set ourselves 10 years ago. So this next conference of the parties is about um, setting up a new framework for how we will govern biodiversity moving forward for the next 10 years. I think the main thing is that we are wrong to seek silver bullet answers. The conservation of biodiversity isn't something that should you know, be left to conservationists and it isn't something that should be left to decision makers at the COP of the CBD. It has to be integrated into absolutely all political and social decision making at every level, from the level of individual households to you know, parish councils and county councils, all the way to to national governments and these international agreements. And really, there is no single answer, but I think it starts with recognising the value of the natural world. We've tended to leave the natural world outside of our decision-making because, oh, that's the environment, that's something else, that doesn't affect me. Whereas, of course, it fundamentally underpins everything. Without the natural world, there is no life, there is no economy, there are no social systems. So we need to change our conceptions of what the natural world is. We need to under fully understand that it does underpin everything and therefore that we need to think about the impacts of all our decision-making on it. So... As part of the UK's preparations uh, for the Biodiversity COP, we've had a report come out by uh, Professor Partha Dasgupta from Cambridge, uh, which has a number of recommendations. Um, what do you think of those? Um, lots of people in the Green Movement have been keen on for a long time is um, looking at GDP um, and you know, wh whether it's really a helpful measure. And his idea is to put into GDP the value of natural resources of countries. Now, how do you feel about that? And then how do you feel about the report uh, in, in the round? So, so as you say, the goal of the Dasgupta review was to, um, was to develop... A common language that integrates both the economy and the natural world so that we account for the values of the natural world in the economy. And this is hugely important because economic decision making has tended to be very highly focused on um, a single bottom line. You, know, you talked about uh, GDP, which is a very simple measure of economic activity. Whereas, of course, the, you know, the value of the world 
um, extends much beyond what we tend to measure in economic terms. So, for example, if we think about farming, you know, for decades, the single objective of farming has been to maximize food production um, because yeah, that, that's what contributes to, um, yeah, to, to the economy. Um, but, but in maximizing food production, we also cause a lot of costs that don't factor into our economic decision-making. So when, when you try to maximize food production, it, and all you're thinking of is the value of your yield, then it might make economic sense to drench your fields in herbicides and drench your fields in pesticides because that's what's going to maximize your yields. But in doing so, you're also generating lots of costs that you're not factoring into the equation. So you're contributing to the disappearance of insects, which don't just pollinate and provide other services, but they also, you know, bring joy to, to, to people's lives. When, you know, when, when I go walking and I see lovely butterflies and, and dragonflies and beetles, that gives me joy. Um, and that's a joy that doesn't figure in, you know, that's of course something valuable, but it doesn't figure in that bottom line of the, you know, how much money the farmer is getting for his yields. He will also be suffering soil erosion um, because he's maximizing food you know, one, towards one particular value. And that soil erosion is going to mean there's more soils in rivers. So there's less life in the rivers. There's more siltation. And that might lead to flooding um, later on. So in just trying to maximize the cash generated from the field, we're not looking at all the costs that that generates. So the idea behind um, this expanded idea, this expanded view of, of costs and benefits in the economy is that we try by valuing the, the services that are lost when we just try and maximize food production, we get a better idea, we get, have a more complete balance sheet of you know, the costs and benefits of our decisions. I think it's, it's very important so that we have a better understanding of our impacts on the natural world. It's also very important to enable us to communicate better with um, with decision makers, with politicians and policymakers who are, you know, deciding on the rules of the game that we all live by. These are people that tend to speak in terms of financial value and don't recognize values such as beauty and love and, and, and things like this. So if we find a way of quantifying the value of the birds and the bees and the soil and all the rest of it and put that on the balance sheet, the idea is that it allows people to make wiser decisions. And there is a risk that in focusing on economic values, we can actually undermine those aesthetic and spiritual values. And there's some really good examples of that from social psychology research. So, for example, there's been fascinating work on rates of blood donation, why people choose to give blood. So in England, this is entirely voluntary. 
in the USA, you get paid for giving blood. And the thinking there is that if people will do something for free, then of course they'll do much more of it if you pay them. But the reality is the exact opposite. Um, because people in the UK give blood because it's the right thing to do, because it makes them feel good about themselves. When you turn that into a financial transaction, you're not doing it because you're a good person anymore. You're doing it for money. And of course, it demeans me to, to think that my blood is only worth 10 quid. So actually, by turning it into a financial decision, they have put people off from giving blood. And in fact, it gets worse than that because it means that it's only desperate people, who, who um, yeah, people that live in poverty, who give blood. And it th then has this stigma attached to it um, that, oh, that, that's only something that, that, that poor people do. So by trying to turn it into a financial transaction, they've undermined the reasons that people already had for doing it and for many of us the you know the most powerful driver is love and appreciation and so there's just this fear that by financializing everything we will undermine the reasons that we already have for protecting nature i suppose it's a little bit like the way that um in actuarial tables they price a human life at something like i think uh, the uh, I hope I'm not making this up, that the international kind of average is about 11,000 um, if someone dies. Um, I mean, it's ridiculous in, in, a, in a, a number of ways, but also the, yeah, they tend to value human life based on earnings potential. Um, and then that leads to ridiculous conclusions, like a man's life is worth more than a woman's life, or that a white yeah. person's life or is worth more than a person of colour's life. <laughs> And um, so, yes, there are, you know, there are a lot of good reasons why we can't always reduce value into financial value. Nevertheless, it's a powerful, it can be a powerful tool. Um, and I think we need to use every tool available to us. We need to adapt our messages to different audiences too. And of course, it's right that we speak, we need to appeal to people's interests. Everybody has different interests. Everybody has different values. And one of the challenges for us as advocates for the living world is to identify and appeal to the values of the different audiences we're speaking to. Because, of course, everybody wants there to be a livable world in which their children can thrive. Yeah, I was listening online yesterday to an accountant, I think, who was saying that um, extinction um, isn't profitable that people should be investing in areas where extinction isn't going to happen. And it just, seemed, um, it just seemed so wrong in so many ways. But I guess we've all got our framing and uh, the crisis is so big that it impinges in everybody's world in slightly different ways. Anyway, we've taken up a lot of your time. Thank you very much, Charlie. Is there anything that you would like to say or... I, I just... Well, there's a couple of things I'd, I'd like to say. One is that, of course, all of these terrible things that we're talking about as, as happening on the horizon are not inevitable. Um, and, you know, whether they happen depends on, on our actions. As a conservationist, I've never had much hope for the future. Ever since I was a young child, I was, you know, 
deeply aware of where the world was heading. And I've never had much hope until the last couple of years and until the rise of Extinction Rebellion. There's, yes, things are getting worse, but the only way that they will start getting better again is if we reach social tipping points, if the world wakes up and starts to change. And the thing that gives me hope more than anything else is Extinction Rebellion. So I'd just like to, to thank all anyone who might be listening for all their efforts it's it really it just means so much to me all my life i've been waiting for you know the general public to care as much about the natural world as i do and now that's happening and and it's yeah it's what i've always been waiting for and it's just such a beautiful thing Thank you so much for your time. Uh, See you on the streets, hopefully, later in the year. (laughs) I look forward to that. Thank you, Jessica, for the opportunity to come and speak to you. It's, It's been a lot of fun. Thank you. Wow, that was a pretty amazing affirmation of Extinction Rebellion. And I have to say that I feel the same as that. A lot of people put a lot of store on hope. Uh, but I actually think that rather than hope, if you can do things to try and improve the present situation, then it makes you feel psychologically better. I don't know about you, Tom, but I found all the stuff about um, ecological collapse pretty terrifying. It is terrifying. And it's, it's frightening that the idea that it's speeding up and every report I hear, something new's happening or we're losing something else. It's inspiring what Charlie was saying, all of that stuff. It's, it's amazing to learn and... Uh, and hear about it. Yeah. Actually, I also feel really bad, uh, but I haven't been able to get you to edit it out of the interview about kind of slagging off my biology teacher <laughs> from when I was <laughs> at school because she was doing her best. And um, yeah, uh, uh, it's pretty rubbish of me to do that. Um, what uh, jumped out at you from the interview, Tom? I like any kind of statistics. And uh and I think also really nailed it with, um, you know, saying that how much we, you know, we, me and you, we would, uh, you know, love nature and it was all very much love. And then just saying that how people that are destroying it, you know, they're incapable of love. I mean, it just it just made me laugh that um, <laughs> they're paying more for to say that. beard grooming than they are yeah. to keep nature yeah. going. Yeah. Yeah, good on him for for saying that. Yeah, I must, I must, I must say the whole interview actually felt quite um, sobering. It feels almost like uh, uh, the talk, uh, the famous XR talk, but on the subject of biodiversity. Um, It's quite sobering where we are and how much needs to be done Uh, but of course the biodiversity cop is coming up in may and so there's everything to play for uh, until then we really need to be putting pressure onto the on onto the government um so tom thank you for jumping in uh, to co-present at last minute you're a hero well thanks for having me Uh, you've made a massive contribution to this episode by both co-presenting and editing And thank you for listening to the Extinction Rebellion podcast. Um, This won't be our last biodiversity episode because we'll be looking at that formidable Dasgupta report that was mentioned in the interview in a further episode before the 
Biodiversity Corp. And if you've enjoyed this episode, why don't you subscribe on Apple, on Amazon or any of the usual podcast providers. I've been Jessica Townsend. I've been Tom Stallard. (laughs) (laughs) And this is the Extinction Rebellion podcast. Civil disobedience. Non-violence. This is a moment of choice. Extinction Rebellion.